Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From Business Insider, this is Success, How I Did It. I'm Allison Chantel. Our guest today dropped out of college and lived in a commune. She wrote for magazines and founded one of her own, and she also helped put Patty Hearst in jail. Then she greenlit Grey's Anatomy and Desperate Housewives when she was leading ABC Entertainment. This woman also led Martha Stewart living Omnimedia while Martha was in jail, and she was the former CEO of Guilt Group. Her name is Susan Line, and now she's helping more female founders through a fund called BBG, or Built by Girls. Susan recently spoke with Business Insider's Rich Filoni. Susan, thank you for talking with us today. I'm happy to be here. You grew up right outside Boston, daughter of a lawyer turned entrepreneur, and you were the oldest of five kids. How did that impact where your life would take you? Yeah, well, look, I think oldest children have a different mentality or know that there were different expectations of them. And I was not only the oldest child, I was the oldest grandchild of 18 grandchildren. So I definitely grew up feeling like there were a lot of people who expected me to do something. But it was a very conservative family, very conservative neighborhood. We're talking mid-late 60s when I was growing up there. And so if I had stayed in the Boston area, I think my life would have been radically different. All of my friends at the time, you know, if they had careers, they often put them aside once they had children. I went to an all-girls school, again, quite protected. But I was turned down by Harvard, so I was not able to stay in the Boston area. And I went out to UC Berkeley. And It was a completely different world, also a completely different time. You know, 1968 was a time of massive change around the country, and for a protected Irish Catholic girl from a Republican family, it was eye-opening and really exciting. So it sounds like you were kind of rebelling against expectations set for you? I was actively, I think, rebelling against them for a period of time. But it was also that I just didn't want the life that I saw a lot of people back in my neighborhood leading. How do you mean? A a suburban life. It was very comfortable. Lots of great clubs around. Lots of good schools for kids. But for somebody who grew up thinking, I want to do something, I want to have an impact on the world— it was not necessarily the place you could do that. 
And in this part of your life, didn't you spend time on a commune as well? <laughs> yes, I lived it. Well, it wasn't a commune. Okay. I, I, we called it a collective, which really means that it wasn't out in the country. <clears throat> I'm sure your uh, Republican family really <laughs> yeah, enjoyed that. that. Yeah, Yes, they did. <laughs> um, but, you know, honestly, my family was great about this ultimately. I think that my mother particularly was horrified by my politics, by the people I was hanging out with. But over time, I think they realized that that had opened up a world to me that was going to give me a different set of choices. And in time, they got close to some of my crazy boyfriends, and uh, <laughs> and they embraced my friends coming back to Chestnut Hill. And it I think had an impact on the way they thought about the world. My mother was still, still wished many, many times that I would rein in some of what I was doing. But by the time I was in my 40s and I was working in the television industry, she was incredibly proud of what I was doing. And, and I think recognized that the path to get there was not ever going to be Chestnut Hill. And when you were just starting out on that path, you were saying earlier that you were driven by this desire to change things. Mm -hmm. When you were out in California, what was kind of forming this idea? What change did you want to enact? Well, it started because I came of age in a time when the anti-war movement was very strong and when early feminism was a touch point for any young woman who was growing up in the Bay Area. So, you know, those were things that made me think, made me read. I just knew that my generation was going to change the direction the country took. I was completely convinced that we would have a very different kind of society as a result of of the protests that that I was part of. And I think that's partially true. We obviously never really got to what many of my generation believed was possible, but the amount of change I've seen in my lifetime, both social change and also political change, is staggering. And I think my generation can take a little bit of credit for that by just opening up the conversation. When you were just starting out, you dropped out of school, correct? I did. Yeah. So you dropped out. <laughs> Twice. At, yeah. <laughs> And then you ended up at Francis Ford Coppola's magazine, right? Right, City. yeah. yeah. So, so what drove you yeah. to that? And why'd you get out of school? And what drove you to the magazine so world? I, honestly, I think I was really impatient to be in the world and not to be a student anymore. While I was in school, I did freelance work for a couple of magazines. I liked the fact that people came together and batted around ideas. and And then as an editor, you would look for the perfect writer for it, somebody who could make it better than you imagined. Uh, and then ultimately putting an issue together was about, you know, getting the right mix and the right tone and everything about it was exciting to me. So I talked my way into a job as the assistant to the editor-in-chief of City Magazine, which was a magazine Francis Coppola had actually acquired. He didn't launch it, although it was a, an unknown tiny little entity until he did buy it. And he really believed that there was a way to create an alternative to New York Magazine out in San Francisco. And it was understaffed, and it was full of really interesting people. And so 
like most understaffed operations, you got to do more than just your job. And a highlight of your magazine career was when you had this story about the kidnapped heiress, Patty Hearst, and this actually was brought up in her trial, correct? The, right. This piece, and yeah. it contributed to her being put in jail, right? <laughs> yes, it did. So was that satisfying to be driven by, like, I want to enact change by whatever I'm doing? Was, was this something that was like, oh, this is a success right now? I, I didn't think about the prosecution of Patty Hearst as much as I did about the fact that there were a whole lot of people who were talking about the story. And mm. when you are in the magazine business, yes, you want your magazine to be talked about. You want your publication to be driving the conversation. And for a couple of weeks, we definitely were. At what point did you found your own magazine premiere? That was 1986. In the interim, I'd worked for a couple of magazines, but among them, I had been the managing editor of The Village Voice, and I had met a man there named John Evans, who started out as the classified ad director, became the publisher, and I reconnected with him in 85, and we started talking about how there should be a movie magazine for adults, that the world was changing, and oddly enough, it was a technological development that enabled me to start the magazine, and that was the VCR, because before VCRs, your only alternative, if you wanted to see a movie, was either to go out to a movie theater or to watch what was on one of three networks. So it was a very limited uh limited assortment you could see. Once you had a VCR in your house, if you saw a movie you liked by Marty Scorsese or Francis Coppola, for that matter, you could go back and see every other movie they had done. And it created both a much bigger, deeper audience for films and a smarter audience for films and a whole lot more interest in the movie industry. And so that's the magazine we started, was really a look at the movie business as well as movie making and at Hollywood as a small town. And so what was that experience like? Was it a learning experience that helped you later in your career? I didn't really think about it being a huge change until I got into it. And I realized that I was constantly looking around for somebody I could show what I was doing to because I still wanted approval. I still wanted somebody to say, yes, this is good, go. And it took me, I would say, the first year to get really comfortable with the idea that I was the final say. I've told a story about John Evans. In fact, I tried to make him that final say for a period of time, and I sent him over you know, stories, and he would ignore them. And I finally sent him my editor's letter. And he called me up and he said, Susan, don't ever send me stuff. This is your magazine. I don't buy a dog and bark for it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it was his way of saying, this is yours. And you got to own it. And it was a definitely tough love. But it was a useful thing for me to hear. It was a turning point for me. I would imagine that was useful, even like, well outside the magazine industry. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. After writing about movies, you ended up in the actual movie business with Disney. How did that come about? I got to know a lot of people in the movie industry in the eight plus years that I edited Premiere. 
among the people who I got to know well was Joe Roth, who was running the Disney Studios at the time. And he had said a couple of times, you know, you should come work at Disney. You know a lot about movies. You could do many things here. And after Premiere was sold for a second time, this time to Hachette, I decided, okay, time for me to go. I've done this and on to my next career. The initial job, which was for the studio, turned out to be not right for me. I've never really gotten the movie industry. It just doesn't work for my temperament. I think the fact that you make something and the only time you have input from the people you're making it for is when you put it on a screen, I found very challenging. So were you worried that you would be losing this creative energy that had defined your yeah, career Yeah, and speed, that? right? I mean, one of the great things about the magazine industry is that you're just constantly moving. You know this from Business Insider. You're on to the next thing immediately. You're getting feedback from the people you you write for all the time and that makes you better and it makes you understand what they want to read about or listen to or watch and what I realized is that it was also true about the television business and so within a couple of years I moved across the street to ABC which was wholly owned by Disney and initially I ran movies and miniseries for them which was a really fun job. At the time, all the networks were making 20 plus movies a year and a couple of miniseries and maybe a few limited series. And so you were making things all the time. I think in part because I didn't grow up in that business. I didn't have any assumptions about what worked and what didn't. And so we did some things that were definitely against the grain, and they worked. Things like musicals with great casts, and they were event television. And your task at ABC was to bring hits to the network, right? Exactly. And I, and I mean, you yep. had you had Lost, you had... Well, that was my next job. That was your next job. So okay, in 2002, because I had had some success in the long-form industry, they asked me to run primetime. Yep. And it's one of the best jobs you could possibly have. I mean, really exciting because every year there's a pilot season and you're making a bunch of what could become new series with terrific producers, terrific directors, and a lot of great talent. I would say for the first two years that I was doing that job, I sort of went with the conventional wisdom, which at the time was that men wouldn't watch a show made for women but women would watch a show made for men. So, you know, you ended up with a lot of procedural shows that were closed-ended and everyone was chasing the next CSI. And in my third development season, we just went completely against the grain and said, we're going to find the next girl show. So is that when you had Desperate Housewives? Yes. And, and then Grey's Anatomy? Grey's Anatomy, The Bachelor, mm-hmm. um, and Lost, which turned out to be a huge crowd pleaser for both men and women. And actually, as it turned out, there were plenty of men who were watching Desperate Housewives too. But this idea of programming for women and making sure that they felt like these were their shows ended up being a smart move for us. And so that's how you could kind of tell that there would be a hit when you saw that let's go for this market and it will end up 
bringing everyone in? Well, it's always a crapshoot when you make a pilot. And one of the things I realized very quickly is that you could have a great script and you could cast it wrong and it would die. Or you could get the wrong director for it and just would never live up to what you expected. Alternatively, there were some things that were significantly better once they were on the screen. In the case of Desperate Housewives, it was a great script that was incredibly well cast and well directed and worked on every level. And so did Grey's Anatomy. And that was really the first series that Shonda Rhimes did for ABC. She was remarkable back then, as she is even more remarkable now. But one of the things that she did that was very smart and unusual She wrote the script with no descriptions of the people who were playing parts. So was not an African-American actor or an Asian actor. And then she brought in a very mixed group of actors to read for all the key parts. So it became a very diverse show without anybody thinking about that before we picked it up. That was just one of several hits that came out under you when you were leading primetime. You were given that job to crank out hits, but you were just fired um, just after two <laughs> years. Was. So yeah. well, what, what happened two there? Two and a half years. Two and but a half. Yes. What, what happened there? So, you know, we were in fourth place when I took the job, and we were still in fourth place when I put the shows we were just talking about onto our schedule. But they hadn't launched In fact, we hadn't even announced them. It was two weeks before the upfronts that I lost my job. On one level, it's not something that was completely unexpected. When I took the job, a well-known producer said, nobody retires from these jobs. You will be fired (laughs) at some point. Yes. I just thought I would have a longer run. And what made you take it even when you were basically being warned that you'd be fired eventually, even if it wasn't after a couple years, just some point down the line, you're going to be fired from this job? Because it's one of the great jobs. There are certain creative jobs where you know you are the person on the line. And there are few guarantees that you're going to be able to crank out hits every year. For the most part, it's a roller coaster. You look at Fox, you look at NBC, you look at ABC, and they've been up and down over the years and in every different position. So if you are somebody who is not afraid of risk and you love the creative process, it's great. Why would you not do it? I read in Fortune that after you had left ABC that the showrunner of Commander-in-Chief actually based <laughs> the character yeah. of the first female president after you. <laughs> What was that like when you found that out? The producer of that show was interviewed for a column in the Times. And my husband came into our bedroom with the Times under his arm, chuckling. He was just very entertained. And it was such a lovely gift to get when I was relatively low that he had, as he said, based the character on me. After ABC, you ended up at uh, Martha Stewart's media company to head that up. And that was at a time when the CEO you were replacing had been fired. And then Stewart, she was headed to prison. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 
What was it like going into this type of situation? <laughs> yes, as I said, not afraid of risk. <laughs> um, it was a really interesting moment. And again, I think that I'm definitely drawn to situations where a lot's at stake. I knew the brand really well. I had been a huge admirer of what Martha built, you know, on so many different levels, because I think it was a very smart business model that she had. And it was doing incredibly well until she was indicted and ultimately convicted. I was on the board at the time. And I saw a couple of things. One was that her customer did not leave. They, in fact, doubled down on her. We were seeing people who were taking two-year subscriptions instead of one-year subscriptions, and they were buying more product at Kmart. And So there was even more loyalty. There was, and I think they really felt like she got a raw deal. And okay. so they were quietly showing support for her. At the same time, advertisers fled. Yeah. And so the magazine, which had been hugely profitable, was bleeding cash. And the question was, could we get it back? One thing that I heard over and over again from advertisers when I went out to ask them about it was, we want to come back, but we're not going to do it until this is passed, which meant that she had to go to prison. Yeah. And that was a tough decision because any normal person would say, I'm going to appeal this. People were very surprised by the conviction. Instead, she went off to Alderson Prison in West Virginia and did her five months there and then another five months under house arrest. Once she had agreed to go to prison, it seemed to me that we had a great chance of rebuilding the company. We had a lot of fun doing it, certainly for the first few years that I was in that role. She did an amazing job wooing advertisers back once she was under house arrest. She was hosting two, three dinners a week at her house in Bedford for advertisers, you know, groups of <laughs> eight or 10 people. Nobody said no, because <laughs> they all wanted to come out and see her ankle bracelet and, <laughs> and have a story about Martha just out of prison. So was she in good spirits during? She was stuff? in great spirits. Hmm. Uh, you know, she was very impressive when she went off to Alderson. And did she that help you? kept her sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, after a certain point, I think she needed to be running her own show. She didn't need me anymore. But I stayed until the company was profitable again. Around this time, you, your husband had died. And this was a dark period. I had seen you yeah. say that this was actually another turning point in your life. Yeah. Well, huge. Yeah. Could you kind of explain a bit on, on that notion of what it taught you about what you wanted to get out of your career and, and what you wanted to do with your life? I wouldn't wish this on anybody. My husband died of pancreatic cancer, which is a really brutal form of cancer, uh, and it's very fast. But you get warning that you have a limited amount of time. And because of that, and because my husband was extraordinary about the experience, all of our children came back and moved back in, essentially. They were either there every day or they literally moved back in. And I know that all of my children really feel like nothing was left unsaid to their father. And that's a big gift when you have the time to be able to really dig deep mm -hmm. with someone you love 
and not feel like, oh, if I'd only had that one conversation I wanted to have with him. In many ways, I went through a lot of my adult life thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next, and always having my eye on tomorrow as opposed to what's happening at this moment. And that experience forces you to really focus on the moment. And I've said my husband really taught me to be present during that period of time. You know, it was the one demand he had. Don't be texting people or answering phone calls when we're sitting together. This is our time. And it was really important to me, not just for that experience, but it's been really important ever since. Because if I'm with somebody and I'm talking to them, I am not thinking about anything else. And it's something you have to practice, and he made me practice it. And has that changed the way that you've handled relationships, whether in your own life or in business? Yes. Doesn't mean that I'm not frantic about what's going to happen in the coming week. But if I'm in a meeting, I'm fully there. And if I'm with my kids, I am fully there. Has that made you a better leader as well? Yeah, I think it has. And I think it's made me a happier person too. I have no doubt that if I had just kept on operating the way that that I had during large periods of my adult life, I would not be as as happy and satisfied and all those good things as mm-hmm. I am today. Are you able to get some of that satisfaction from when you joined the startup world, which was more about creating yeah. things? Yeah, absolutely. C- could you tell me what, what drew you into that? It started yeah, with guilt, right? It guilt did. Group. Yeah. Yes. And guilt was started by two young women. And because they had started something that grew fast and was an exciting touch point for the city of New York. We had many, many young women who were interested in founding companies or who had started companies coming through the doors, and many of them found their way to my office. I advised a lot of them, and I look at that moment as a real tipping point. Actually, Guilt was founded, or launched at least, the very end of 2007. So it was right after the iPhone launched and right before the App Store launched. But once the App Store was open, so many young women could think about building companies even if they didn't have a full-stack engineer. And you maintain this optimism for growth and building things even within the recession? Yeah, I did. How? Uh, well, I was at Gilt, and that's a start. Yeah. So yeah. Gilt was one of the few companies that actually probably benefited from that period of time because there was a ton of excess inventory, great excess inventory okay, yeah. that came our way. And Gilt but, was about providing deals on yes, luxury Gilt items. Yes, Gilt was a, yeah. an e-commerce company that every day at noon launched new sales of great brands at highly discounted prices. And so that actually benefited from the recession. And it allowed people to shop who might have felt very guilty about it under other circumstances. That's not the main reason that I think guilt worked, though. I think it wasn't just the discounts. I think there was really something quite unique about the whole experience that sort of combined entertainment and shopping. 
nobody felt guilty about taking a five-minute break from their work and just going in and seeing what was on Gilt. And so you used this experience with startups. You became a founding partner of um, BBG, and that was spun out of AOL, correct? In, right. In well, uh, our, our first fund was wholly backed by AOL, okay. by Tim Armstrong. And he is still, or, or the company, now Oath, and Verizon are our two largest LPs. And they've been incredibly supportive of this conceptually as well as physically. I think that we are not a strategic fund for them in the sense that a lot of corporate VCs are. But what we are doing is really getting a an early look at how consumer behavior is changing, what consumers want, what's going to make them really happy. And that, I think, is incredibly valuable. And it seems to be an opportunity to draw in a lot of the lessons from your career in terms of what works with consumers, specifically female consumers and female-led companies. That yeah, It's kind of absolutely. all coming together. And <laughs> I true. imagine that's very gratifying. It's great. And at the start of our conversation, you were saying that your career has been led by where is there an opportunity to change things. And what's really interesting is that as you're leading BBG right now, there is so much happening across the country, but even with tech in terms of Silicon Valley rethinking its uh, dynamic between genders and really taking a deep, close look at gender discrimination in Silicon Valley, whether it's how companies are run or where venture capital money is going in. What is your mission and what do you see that you are in a position to help yep. make a difference here? So I would say at the nucleus of this, it's how do we get more venture capital to women? Last year, less than 3% of all venture capital went to female founders. That's shocking. <laughs> now, it's better at the seed stage, but as you get up into growth rounds, it's increasingly men who that money is going to. Why do you think so? I think there are many, many reasons. I think two of the biggest reasons are that computer science as a major has been dominated by men. And so the people coming out of CS programs have been male. And the venture capital partnerships that have grown up since the 50s were almost exclusively male. Now, that was partly because many of the people who formed some of the earliest tech companies then became venture capitalists. But it's also because people tend to hire people like themselves or when they're starting a partnership to bring in people who they know and like. And I think there was a kind of cluelessness about what the long-term impact of that was going to be. We launched BBG Ventures three years ago, Labor Day. It's only been in the last year that we've started seeing some of these partnerships open up and bring in a female partner. That, I think, is largely because they're starting to think, okay, we're going to miss deal flow if we don't have somebody on our team who's got those networks. Nothing gets people's attention more than the fact that they could miss out on a big deal. And you're in a position to kind of be having an impact in tech through in BBG. In my own yeah. little way. In your own way, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that a lot of listeners will be admiring the way that you've 
been able to go through different industries and get so much out of all of these different positions. What would your advice be to someone who wants a career like that, where they can be in charge and not feel pigeonholed? Yeah, I would say, first of all, don't be afraid. You know, I made multiple leaps where there were no guarantees that I was going to be successful. And by the way, I, I was not always successful. But I think if you go into something new with an open mind and you let people around you know what you don't know, for the most part, they're going to link arms with you. So you can't plan a career so closely that you never make a move unless you know that it's going to work. There's always going to be risk involved in change, right? But I see many, many young women now, and that's part of what excites me about the startup world, who have left great jobs and said, I think I can build something. And 80% of them will probably fail at it, but they'll learn a ton and they'll either be much better when they go back into a corporate job or they'll start a second company and they'll succeed. That's the way that we learn. We learn by making mistakes. And if you genuinely want to have a multifaceted career that takes you into multiple industries, then I think you have to be willing to fail. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. If you like success, help us spread it. Tell a friend who you think might like the show or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to Success in a lot of places, including Apple, Google Play, Radio Public, and Stitcher. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always email us at audio at businessinsider.com. I'm Allison Chantel. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Success How I Did It.